Welcome back to Driven by Cause. This episode is brought to you by Ariba and Microsoft, the industry-only, completely integrated and fully automated, all-in-one digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software platform, helping thousands of nonprofits daily. I'm here with my wonderful co-host, Jay Fisk. What's up, Jay? Well, we're going to have a great interview today, uh, David. Good to good to be uh, here again with you and and with a, another great guest. Well, Jay, you know, thanks for that. Uh, we're really excited today about a special guest, um, and I get the honor to uh, introduce this guest on this episode. And it really is um, a, a very amazing person, international leader, groundbreaking innovator for environmental conservation. She is the executive director of the Monterey Bay Sea Aquarium, which she's helped found in the 1970s. Under her leadership, the aquarium has led the way, becoming one of the nation's leading ocean conservation organizations. She's a trustee of the David and Lucille Packard Foundation and chairs the board of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. She's received numerous honors and awards, including the Audubon Medal for Conservation, the National Marine Sanctuary Foundation's Lifetime Achievement Award, and the Californian Coastal Commission's Coastal Hero Award. In 2019, she became the only second woman in the marine science and conservation, along with Rachel Carson, to be the subject of commission portrait for the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., and she is also our guest today. Please welcome wow. Julie Packard. Julie, how are you? I am great today, and thank you so much for inviting me to your program. Really appreciate the opportunity to share whatever wisdom I can that might be of interest. We're so happy to have you here, Julie. Thank you for speaking with us today, and let's get right into it. Julie, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and our audience and share a bit about your amazing work you're doing? I grew up in the Santa Clara Valley, what we now call the Silicon Valley, although the old timers are not crazy about that that moniker, which is humorous since, since my father, David Packard, is one of the main reasons it's called that. But in any case, I um, grew up in the Cal- near the California coast and studied biology, marine biology, at uh, one of the UC campuses in Santa Cruz there on the coast. And that's where I fell in love with the ocean. I think probably as a child of the 60s, when the environmental movement was really firing up, you know, the first Earth Day in 1970 and all of that, I, I knew that um, I really cared about the environment and I was very, very passionate about teaching and doing outreach and doing whatever I could to engage people in the idea of caring, caring for nature. My older sister and uh, her husband and colleagues came up with the idea of building an aquarium um, in Monterey on Cannery Road. They were teaching and doing research at Stanford's Marine Lab. We all got working on that project and uh, my dad was really fired up about it, became very engaged and and asked me to to lead it as project director. That was back in the late 70s and the aquarium is now uh, coming up on our 40th year in a couple of years. And uh, I always take my work kind of year to year, but as long as I'm still learning and having fun, it's just been an amazing, amazing privilege and opportunity to uh, help build this great institution. Well, you, you've clearly done uh, tremendous work for ocean conservation, research, you know, environmental protection, and this is uh, these causes are obviously very, very important to you. Why should it be important to others? Well, it's interesting you know, when we first built the aquarium, we we had we still had the notion that the ocean was relatively pristine. Certainly, in areas like the California coast or the Florida coast, it all looks fine. You look at the surface; it looks good. People are out there catching fish; they're recreating. And the notion was always the ocean is so vast, so large, no human impact could possibly affect it. Well. Honestly, just since the aquarium opened, which was back in the mid-80s, we rapidly, rapidly realized that's no longer the case. And really just in the last quarter century, the scale of human activity using ocean resources and also putting things into the ocean, using it as our waste dump, essentially, has just escalated. There's just 
a lot of us living on the planet and we consume a lot of stuff and we make a lot of waste and we eat a lot of fish. If you're talking about saving nature, you've got to be talking about saving the ocean. You know, nearly three quarters of the surface area of our blue planet by volume is actually over 95% of the space where life can exist. 95% of the space where life can exist. When you think about it, that's an amazing thing. I mean, there's far more life in the ocean than on land. And the ocean is, it's not just a vast blue space to look at. It's actually a, something that our lives depend on. I mean, all of life depends on it. It's our pantry. It's our playground. It's a vast storehouse of innovation for the future and pharmaceuticals and other materials we have yet to discover. It's a huge driver of global commerce. It produces a huge amount of the oxygen that we breathe that makes our atmosphere livable. And it also takes up a huge amount of the excess carbon that we've put in the atmosphere from excess burning of fossil fuels. Something like 90% of the heat generated by humans since the Industrial Revolution has been absorbed by the ocean. And all of that takes a living ocean, you know, I mean, a dead ocean doesn't provide those services. So that's why it's important. Question is how to get people to care about it, because it seems so vast and so far away and, and so big, too big to fail. That's a that's a phrase that my colleague Sylvia Earle um, applies to it, but you know it's not. That's that's not the case. So our mission at the Monterey Bay Aquarium is to inspire conservation of the ocean, to expose people to this amazing world, to hope they fall in love with it, want to you know do something to ensure that it thrives and survives into the future to sustain all of life. So that's. That's our mission, and that's that's the hardest thing that we do at the aquarium, actually. The hardest thing is not keeping the animals or doing R&D about new species. It's really figuring out the human animal and how to get people motivated to care and take action. Well, you, you, clear, you clearly have a, uh, I mean, we can feel your passion. Uh, we're going to give you a chance to brag a little bit. You've been the executive director of the aquarium since the uh, late 1970s, so uh you know, since its inception, actually. So share with us some of the accomplishments that you're particularly proud of. I've had the opportunity to work with such an amazing team of uh, talented, creative innovators here. And, and really, any, everything that we've accomplished is, is all because of the team. And, and I think, um, to begin with, really, just the whole concept of the aquarium is my proudest accomplishment in terms of uh, uh, the idea of creating a different kind of aquarium, something that no one had ever seen or experienced before. Uh, we wanted to immerse people and show them what the ocean is really like. Up until then, aquariums mainly had fish and dolphins, and marine mammals, and that required that we you know, figure out how to do exhibits to showcase all of those things and to also show them in communities, natural communities, like you'd see them in nature. And so um, that required a lot of experimentation and uh, just super cool that we were able to exhibit a lot of things for the first time ever. Um, and after we opened, uh, one of the biggest accomplishments, which I know sounds obscure, but um, it, it, it was and is a big deal, I think, was um, our team figured out how to keep jellyfish or jellies, we call them jellies because they're not fish, uh, keep them in an exhibit environment and became really proficient at that. And we opened the first, uh, first outside of Japan exhibition of jellies. And since then I've had a series of them. Now on the flip side, uh, we've had an amazing bunch of success with uh, more beloved animal, the southern sea otter. We're in the center of the range of the southern sea otter here. Sea otters were hunted to near extinction by fur traders and then been making a very slow um, return. And we have a big program uh, to rescue and care orphan otter pups that we've released hundreds of them back to the wild. And the population is now um, growing to the point where actually it's kind of running out of food source here uh, along this whole stretch of coast in central California. And, and uh, we're looking at a 
program, perhaps, um, where where can they expand their range? Because they used to go all the way from Baja up through Alaska. So that's been sort of an endangered species success. And then the, the last thing I'd mention is we uh, decided to launch a conservation program, the showcase of which uh, is and remains our seafood watch program that some of the listeners may be familiar with. It's a program that rates all the seafood in the U.S. market as to its sustainability and uh, makes recommendations so people can essentially vote with their wallets. And when they order fish at a restaurant or go into the market, they can make a a sustainable choice. Yeah, Julie, that's a really amazing. And I know it is actually having an impact on um, a a lot of people out there. And since the 80s, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has really defined and repivoted the role that other aquariums in the environmental sciences and conservation are doing. What are the next frontiers you see the aquarium exploring to aid the world's oceans? Our program, our global fisheries and aquaculture program, is, is really a central player in moving to a future where we can provide healthy protein. It's actually a food security issue. Um, there's over a billion people in the world that depend on fish for primary protein. So mm-hmm. that, that needs to be sustained. And um, also livelihoods, a whole lot of jobs in populations and communities. And so we're, we're still working on that and it has a lot of momentum. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the progress that we are making, which is now being adopted in, in countries, especially where aquaculture happens, because um, aquaculture is opportunity for business growth and food supply growth in the future. The, the kind of a mother of all conservation threats to the entire planet, ocean or land, obviously, is the impact of carbon emissions and and, uh, global climate change. So we've been working on a couple of fronts. One, to demonstrate climate change mitigation leadership here in California. We were really involved in promoting, for example, the nation's first and biggest network of marine protected areas along our 1,200-mile coastline. Huge deal. Um, we've been really involved in cleaning climate legislation um, at the state level and uh, also, of course, supporting, um, supporting all of that at the national level and, and informing our, uh, our constituents, as you will. I mean, we have two million people that visit us every year, but we have a social media audience that's far bigger than that. And they love the aquarium. And so their love of the aquarium and wanting to follow all of our social media feeds with the animal news. It's also an opportunity to get them informed about and engaged in, in the changes happening in the ocean and what, what they can get behind. I'd say, uh, uh, finally, uh, in the news issue has to do with ocean plastic pollution. Plastic pollution in the ocean is not the biggest threat to ocean health, but um, it, again, is something that we need to fix. The human health issue that we don't really understand yet because plastic microplastics get into or food source uh, when we eat fish. So, and of course, very damaging to the ecosystem. Hoping to have on the ballot a very progressive single-use plastic um, bill that will put the responsibility back on the producer, on the source, looking to support legislation of that nature at the national level as well. Again, because we use a huge amount of single-use plastic that is really unnecessary. So. Those are the kind of things that we are, you know, informing and engaging the public in terms of making change for the future. Yeah, I love to hear that stuff, Julie. It's really exciting. And we see it every day. We see it in the news. I mean, there's so many wonderful things that are, are happening. And I think it's gained a lot of attention out there. And, and as you sit, serve as the chair of the board for the Monterey Aquarium Research Institute, can you share with our listeners and some of the conservation work you've done, I think you've added a little to it, but but more importantly, some of the accomplishments on that that you're most proud of. Well, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute was uh, created by my father, David Packard, a couple of years after the Monterey Bay Aquarium opened, and it has kind of a kind of an interesting story. He wasn't interested in the ocean in particular before we did the aquarium. Our family, we didn't go to the ocean. For vacations, we we go up to the Sierras. We were all about mountains. We did the aquarium together, and he really became keenly interested in the ocean. 
And we felt strongly that any great aquarium needed to have a research program and conduct research. And so a couple of years after the aquarium opened, uh, we convened sort of a blue ribbon panel of ocean scientists from around the world to come and help us answer the question, what are the opportunities here in Monterey Bay for contributing to the ocean research enterprise? We have a lot of universities here. We've got Stanford, UC, State University, Naval Postgraduate School. This is, Monterey Bay is really, it's, it's become since then actually even more an epicenter of ocean science. We wanted to know what's missing, what can we contribute? Well, the group really zeroed in on the fact that this can't, that the Monterey Bay, if you look at it, and now thanks to Google Maps, we can see the whole topography of the seafloor, which is so cool. You'll see there's a big, huge canyon that comes in to the middle of the bay. And it's deeper than the Grand Canyon. It reaches like a couple miles deep, you know, when you get out, you know, by the mouth of the bay. And so there's very deep water close to shore, which is an amazing research opportunity. When you see um, images of those deep sea hot vents that, you know, Alvin has been to or whatever, all those places, usually you have to spend a couple of days motoring out to your research site. And then you have really limited time down there with your cameras. And the scientists were like, wow, you can just get out there and, and study things every day and really understand how the ecosystem works. The other thing, though, that um, caught my dad's attention even more was deep sea research is severely technology limited. There's hardly any dedicated engineering talent being put to the question of exploring, you know, developing technology to explore and understand the deep sea. All the technology that exists and, you know, was really developed by the military or the offshore oil industry. And you know, they, they had technology, but there was really very little dedicated to um, instruments that could really help us um, advance our understanding. So mm-hmm. Embar- the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or EMBARI, um, as we call it, was founded with a mission to develop technology to understand the deep sea environment, the third leg of of the idea he had along with, you know, we're going to focus on the deep sea. It's the last frontier on earth. We're going to develop technology because that's missing. And third leg of the stool, we are going to fund um, these scientists and engineers from the Packard Foundation, so they're going to have to spend their lives chasing after federal grant funds that, A, are usually very short-term, and you can't do a long-term study and, or develop a long-term data set, very difficult to do. B, it's just very time-consuming. And um, C, they tend to be pretty risk-averse. And so we set up a separate private operating foundation, Modern Bay Aquarium Research Institute. It's funded by the Packard Foundation. And Bari has um, just developed just some amazing cutting edge tools, started out with uh, remotely operated vehicles, now developed some amazing autonomous underwater vehicles. These are just, think of a drone, underwater drone, you can just program to run a transect or even chase a school of of plankton to, to, to measure the water chemistry or predict hazardous algal bloom. Also, they have they can put experiments on the seafloor and manipulate as more CO2 from carbon emissions come in the ocean. Uh, and that makes the, the water more acidic. What's the effect on the life there as the ocean water becomes more acidic? Probably their biggest invention that is, is a huge deal, although kind of esoteric, is an instrument that uses genomics that can automatically, can be on a float in the ocean. It can take a water sample and identify the life that is in it, whether it's a plankton species, whether it's, you know, a fish that was recently there, all automatically done at sea, revolutionary. And, you know, the scientists back in the lab can can know what's going on. So now we are part of a big global project to instrument the ocean with devices like this, part of the Global Ocean Observance System. So lots more to say. Um, People are interested in this kind of stuff. Go on the uh, org website. A lot of amazing, amazing video of deep sea life and other other cool stories. You know, I, I tell you, your enthusiasm for what you do is uh, it, it 
it's amazing. And uh, you, you clearly are showing why the, the, uh, the Monterey Bay Aquarium has become a world leader uh, in, uh, in conservation research and the, the tools you're talking about. And, uh, clearly, you could, you could talk days about your accomplishments and well-deserved. Uh, one of the things I guess I wanted to ask you is you've done such a great job of, of tackling your mission and, and uh, combining research and, and education and business initiatives and science-based policies. You've obviously figured out how to, how to do all that. Are there some lessons that other organizations could learn from that? You know, what sort of recommendations could you make to uh, perhaps other organizations that, that want to uh, achieve the depth of accomplishment that you've been able to, to accomplish with the aquarium? First of all, you got to have a, an, an outward learning mindset and realize every day we have we have more to learn. You know, you never get it. You never get it dialed in. I mean, first of all. Um, you've got to have a leader who is really passionate and clear about what's important. <laughs> I'm a big believer. I mean, I, I have a science background and, of course, love to nerd out on details, but uh, realized quickly when we started working in the aquarium, communication, I mean, you can't build a constituency. You can't get your staff behind a mission. You really can't do anything unless you really get good at your communication skills. Do a lot of, you know, testing out of your messages uh, to, to learn what's what's most compelling. And, and that totally, you know, it's whether you're fundraising, which every CEO has to be fundraising, or whether you're, you know, leading a staff meeting. How can you talk about things in the most inspiring way? You need to really work on that. And your communication is is your energy needs to be, you know, how you're communicating and, and getting as good at it as you possibly can. Third, I guess I'd say, you know, really clear mission. I mean, every nonprofit, every consultant that coaches us on our strategic planning, you know, they're always like, you're doing too many things. You got to focus, you got to focus. And, and for us, when we shortened our mission statement, you know, the mission is to inspire conservation of the ocean. I will say having a really succinct mission statement had a bigger impact than I thought. Everyone all the way down to the lowest paid, you know, staff position, everyone knows that mission statement. You know, does it oversimplify? Could people say, oh, well, like what does inspire mean? Or yeah, they can do all of that. But really having a clear, a clear mission statement and, and memorable, that, that had a big impact for us that they didn't expect. I think the other thing about our success with Modern Day Aquarium is that I rely so much on market research data and audience data. And that's one thing that I just feel, uh, especially in today's world where everyone's competing for audience in the social media world, it is so worth really understanding your audience. You know, you gotta figure out how to get as much revenue from every possible angle that you can think of. And we're a little different than a lot of nonprofits, perhaps, because we charge, we provide an experience, we charge money for it. Um, but the fact that we had to do that uh, has made the aquarium so much better because we've always had to be totally attentive to our customers, to our market. Being, being really business oriented has made us stronger institution, not just financially, but in terms of really having to attend to uh, providing an experience that people value. Those are a few things, a few things that come to mind. And uh, you got to just show enthusiasm for what you're doing, no matter how much you might have, you know, how much you might be having a bad day. But that's leadership one-on-one, I think. It's really amazing that you say, and I think those are key words of that you treat this nonprofit as a business. And I believe that is such a strong thing to the audience of, of doing that. You've done an amazing job, um, it, it, not just in the nonprofit space, but just in general speaking, everybody wants to grab awareness out there. You know, they're using all sorts of social media. You mentioned earlier about Instagram and how you have over, I think, 440,000 followers today. How do you grab your audience attention to inspire conservation on the ocean through social media 
and marketing because you've done an amazing job. Is there a special secret out there? Well, we have it kind of easy in that we have all these amazing animal images. I mean, we have so much content here every day. There's, you know, we have thousands of, of animals in the aquarium doing crazy things every day with wonderful stories. So uh, we do have a bit of a leg up that way um, compared to, to some other institutions. But, you know, I would say we just were really fortunate to have hired some really talented social media folks that just ran with it. And, you know, you have to invest. I mean, we, we hired, we've had to hire a lot of people in that realm because you have to, you got to respond to people, you know, the, the social care, they call it. You can't just put yourself out there. You've got to be interacting all the time, morning, noon, and night. Your social media team is going to be like totally burned out and working like crazy. And, but you've, you've got to spend some money on it if, if you want to have a presence. Just have, have a way to, to, to differentiate. I understand we have, there's just a lot of loyalty and love for the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And that's about experience people have had visiting, which I know is, you know, you're renting a hospital or something. <laughs> it's, 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 really, it's really different or, you know, solving the homeless problem. But, um, so I think we kind of have it easy, let's just say that. But we also have an awesome team that's, uh, that's making it happen. Well, I, I love your attitude. I know it's not easy and I know this has taken time and I really appreciate how you accomplish that. You know, in 2021 alone, the aquarium had raised over $50 million um, from its board and supporters. Can you share some of the fundraising practices and different kind of fundraisers you, you did to accomplish that? When we opened, we actually didn't do fundraising because, you know, the, the building was paid for and we wanted to open the doors. We had, uh, we launched membership, obviously new museums always, you know, you sell memberships before you open because people are really keen on getting previews and also, you know, you get free admission for your family. So we started out really just focusing on, on building a membership base. And then over time, and I think we have uh, business sponsorships with acknowledgement at our exhibits it wasn't a lot of money in, in the early days. But then about uh, 10 years after the aquarium opened, we decided to do a big expansion and, and we needed to raise some money to do that. We had about half the money that we had the early years and we had crazy big attendance. We haven't grown our education programs and other programs yet. We squirreled away some money to do a new project. And so um, we did pretty straight ahead capital campaign to build this new wing. And that's when we picked up, that's when we really got in the major donor business, if you will. And so since then we've done, we've done comprehensive five year campaigns there. We kind of do it in the evergreen rolling campaign way, you know, five year horizon just to have it add up to a, you know, this is what we're hoping to get done in the next five years. And here's the price tag for it. So in 2021, of course, um, which was the second year, we were closed for 14 months during COVID. We closed in March 2020, March 2020, and we didn't open until mid 2021. And so we had suffered over a $50 million earned revenue loss because of that. We had to lay off over 200 people. It's a huge deal. Uh, most of our colleagues around the country because the states they were in, um, they reopened before California did. So we, we had a really rough go of it. And we just had to transition to, we're, we're raising money for COVID relief. Just help us make up the deficit. And so the $50 million, which was a remarkable amount of money, um, that was a combination of uh, us, you know, raising money for our programs, the aquarium, the model is the, the base operations um, to run the aquarium generally are paid for with earned revenue, ticket sales, membership, retail, night events. Our conservation and education programs, uh, which are 15 or $20 million a year, we have to raise money for. In 2021, so in, along with the usual raising money from individuals and, and foundations, we get foundation support for our um, global fisheries and aquaculture. We just did a full-on help us emerge from COVID, and we just went to all of our 
all of our major donors and asked for a special gift and just really raised our sights and, and made a case. I mean, it was a pretty, pretty straight ahead case about our deficit, but people don't really like just, it, it wasn't like we're bailing you out, you know, so you don't go under again. People want to invest in a place that's going to be around. And I think that the, the giving was more um, generated by loyalty and love of the institution. And we also raised, we had a huge out, we had something like 10,000 gifts to that campaign. So we had a lot of small gifts and we got much less shy about just like every communication from us, we would kind of say, oh, and yes, please send money. You know, the Instagram, I mean, not all the social media, but so, um, you know, I, I think- yeah. Let ahead. me ask a question about that. Let me ask a question about that, Julie, because you know there's there's always there's always turnover in in the donor ranks for whatever reason. You know, people die, people move, they they develop a loyalty to a different cause, all that sort of thing. But you know, you just talked about a lot of small uh, small donors kicking in there. Do you have a is there a strategy you use to attract new donors to replenish the donors that that go away so that you're always either at least keeping your donor base uh, stable and, and preferably growing it? We still do a lot of direct mail. We do phone calling. We you know, do a lot of direct phone calls to LAPS members. We ask everyone to upgrade every single year. And before COVID, we lost a lot of members during COVID. Mm. Um, before COVID, we had about 75,000 uh, membership households. So that's the pipeline for our donor base, which is really kind of a dream. And so beyond that, it's really the same approach that, that most nonprofits would do is that we have um, different donor circles at different levels that, that have different benefits. Um, and the benefits, actually, they're, they're not like, they're not a lot of extra benefits as you get into higher level, you know, like, There'll be an event once a year if you're a thousand dollar donor where we'll have a lecture and then the 2500 you know we've made those those donor circles bigger over time we actually don't do hardly any fundraisers and the reason being is probably tied to us being a membership organization and that members you know members want benefits they want free admission which they get but we also have like all museums, I think we have member nights. And because the aquarium gets really crowded, people love those member nights. Well, it's hard to charge admission for a night event, you know, when your members get to come. And so we pretty much, the events we do for donors where we have food or lectures or whatever, they're really thank you. They're cultivation events. We really focus just on cultivation um, and we can afford it. I mean, I, I understand a lot of times you need to charge money just because, you know, you can afford to do a nice event with food and beverage. But I also am a strong believer in the majority of fundraising events. If you, you know, penciled out the time and effort for your staff and volunteers and everyone else, they just don't really pencil out. We eventually created a, a fundraising event give an award in my father's name for a business leader who's done a lot for the environment. We only have it every two years. And, um, you know, we've netted maybe two or $3 million from those events. And that's, that's it. We just do the one. But you've, you've, you've used capital campaigns in the, in 2021, that was a capital campaign when you raised, uh, the 50 million. How many capital campaigns have you done over the years or, or what would be your, you know, strategy for putting together a capital campaign, something you've done before? You know, our very first capital campaign really was a capital campaign. It was to build a building. And we just had to raise, I don't know, like $30 million or something. It was a $60 million project. We had raised that much. So we thought, okay, let's, you know, we raised 30 million. Let's try to raise 60. You know, we have these donors. And so we, we put together a program that a lot of it was, it wasn't really capital projects. It was mainly programmatic support. 
And that was a five-year campaign. And so right on the tail of that, we did another five. So we've done rolling comprehensive campaigns. And by comprehensive, I mean, we package up any capital projects that we're doing, which is usually new exhibits. Um, But we do new exhibits every two to four years. So it's not like one $30 million big project. It's, you know, we're doing these exhibits and you're going to fund education and other conservation, seafood work, and endowment. You know, we started to build endowment. We did solicit some outright endowment gifts, which we still do. We don't raise a lot of that um, directly, but we've, you know, created different endowment yeah. goals at different times that are part of the campaign. Julie, you've had an opportunity, and most people haven't to sit on and, and run two different boards. One as the trustee of the David and Lucille Packard Foundation and, and then the chair of the board of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. And I'm sure each board member is very different and maybe the way boards are run a little differently or you know, could you give and share insights on how you've actually got the board members involved in fundraising um, and in development if they've, if they've done that as well? Oh yes, this is always the biggest the biggest challenge for anyone involved with development and those two boards, the Packard Foundation, of course, we, we make grants, we don't fundraise. So, um, and, and, and Ambari, the research Institute doesn't really fundraise either, but I have a lot of experience as executive director of the aquarium because we do fundraise. I will say that, you know, when we started doing our big fundraising event every couple of years, that really did get everyone involved what can I say? You know, everyone's so different. You know, you have some of your most generous donors on your board might be really uncomfortable being involved with fundraising at all. And that's fine. Of course, they're wonderful. And they're, they, they're helping with fundraising by setting an example. We try to get a lot of visibility at the board meetings to the board giving, really make it visible. So everyone knows, okay, board members are, are really pitching in at the same time. I'm not a believer in, you know, stating a specific amount of contribution that your trustees need to have. I feel like that's very, that's going to more and more go out of vogue where it still exists because it's not inclusive. You need to have an upfront discussion before you bring a trustee on as as to this and if they really want to fire up and help with fundraising. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I know it's always a challenge for a lot. You know, some are very active, some are more active than others. So I I do appreciate that insight and sharing that. You know, you serve, this is a little different, but you know, you serve on the Joint Oceans Commission Initiative, which works to implement comprehensive reform of the U.S. ocean policy, which is very different than just running a board. Can you speak more about your experience working in political reform? I mean, this is a very difficult thing even beyond that and share how others can get involved in achieving legislation measures for their cause? Sure, I, I was asked to serve on this Ocean Commission, which was a project of the, of the Pew Charitable Trust to set up an independent commission to review ocean policy um, for the US. Liam Panetta chaired it. Um, and of course I said, yes, I'd never done anything like that before. And it was an lear- amazing learning experience. In terms of policy reform, I think it's really important for all of us to to show up, whether it's if we are part of, to, to be part of the professional associations that our organizations are part of, whether it's it's uh, American Association of Museums, all those groups that have lobbyists to bring visibility to their causes, develop relationships with your local representatives, hope that they are people of influence. If they're not, ask your board for other introductions and connections to to people of influence and um, book the time to inform your local reps about what you're doing and, and why it's important and who your constituency is. You know, if you can position your organization as being a trusted source of information, then your constituents, whether it's your social media constituents or your members or whatever, they'll look to you for guidance. Like we're constantly told people want to know what the aquarium thinks about this or that ocean issue. How should we vote? Just tell us. It's too confusing. Just tell us what to do. You want to work on 
I'm building a brand of stature and trust that then can enable you to, to have power and influence um, and in, in terms of policy work. Thank you for that. No, we're, we're, uh, we're coming towards the end of our conversation, Julie. We, we really appreciate your insight in so many different areas. I mean, uh, we, we've really kind of covered the, the, excuse the pun, the waterfront uh, with, with, your, with the questions and your answers. Uh, but I, I'm wondering if you can identify some of the ways our listeners um, could make daily changes in their, you know, in their life. What can they do day to day to help further the cause of not just your mission, but the cause of, of common cause, if you will, for all of our all of our benefit relative to the oceans? Probably not going to reverse global climate change uh, in, in, in time. And that is the, the biggest issue that we need to be concerned about. That being said, though, you know changes that we make are sending a, a consumer signal, if you will. And so just like with the Seafood Watch program, that's really changing how fish is harvested and processed and grown in farms. We have the power to, to do that. The other thing that we are working on a lot right now is reducing single-use plastic. We have so much of it in our lives. Make your family go and like, track what's in your trash for a week and consider, you know, how much of that is, is just throwaway plastic that's going to be with us for 400 years, neither like fill up the landfill and, you know, not to mention pollute the water and endanger wildlife and everything else. We can not only send a consumer signal, but again, most importantly, for both those issues and everything else to do with the environment, you know, make change locally. There's a lot of local ordinances that are happening in communities around um, single-use plastic. For example, you can make that change and change happens starting locally. So it's really worth it. And engage the kids. I mean, they're high schools that are, you know, plastic-free high schools and um, the, the youth voices really can have an influence and in they're fired up. They're not happy with the mess that we have created for them. So, um, you know, take advantage of, of that and, uh, and, and give, them a, give them a voice and a platform. Wow, excellent. Thank you. Julie, we, we like to get to know our guests on a personal level as well. And you, you are just done so so many amazing things professionally what is something about you that might surprise someone listening to find out about you i might have mentioned before but the biggest thing that comes to my mind is the fact that i actually didn't spend hardly any time in the ocean until i went to college and people usually assume oh julie you must have a story like sylvia earl where you went snorkeling at age three and i'm like no you know, and I study, I actually studied terrestrial botany in college, and uh, I love plants. Plants are my first love, and, um, and, and the mountains are really my first love, too. But every part of nature is so, so fabulous. Um, I, I love every bit of it, but um, that, that is a piece of my, of my history people might not assume. So we always like to finish off our show by asking, what is something Jay or I didn't ask you that you wish we did. I honestly, I can't think of anything you didn't ask me except um, perhaps one thing, which is, you know, for those who are contemplating setting up their own, their own giving, for example, what's your advice to them? And um, my advice, there's so many people that are, you know, I mean, we're all so privileged to, to have either inherited the resources we have or earn the resources that we have. And, you know, regardless of how you spend your time in your job, uh, the most fun and rewarding thing that you can, you'll probably find out you can be doing is to be contributing to a cause. And so even though I'm out fundraising for the ocean all the time, I always say, find a cause, find something that, that interests you, that, 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 someone that needs help or a cause that strikes a chord and get involved in contributing at, at any level. I feel that there's kind of a kind of a thing going on in today's world, especially with a lot of folks that have, have generated a lot of resources. Uh, it's almost like they're thinking too hard about it. We're going to come up with a silver bullet and solve the world's problems. And maybe I've been around too long, but I'm like, mm, 
you know, it takes takes a village. It takes a lot of points of view, and especially all of us who have uh, grown up with so much power and privilege. We need to do a lot more listening, a lot more listening to um, those who are closer to the ground, experiencing what life in today's world is really like. Well, first of all, thank you so much. That was a, a really thoughtful and kind and great answer. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsors. We are a team that has had an enduring influence on the nonprofit industry for more than three decades. We pride ourselves on developing and delivering technology with a purpose, software born of a genuine understanding and passion for cause. We are relentlessly dedicated to our client's success. We are with our clients for good. We are Ariva, tech with purpose, driven by cause. Ariva is the trusted advisor and market leader of fundraising, donor relationship management, and auction software and services. Exceed further, our evolutionary all-in-one digital fundraising and donor relationship management software is helping nonprofits worldwide further their mission, transform fundraising, and cultivate relationships with donors and constituents. Our Maestro Auction virtual, live, and silent auction software, text-to-bid, virtual and mobile bidding software, and text-to-fund, text-based donation software are helping nonprofits raise billions of dollars through thousands of virtual fundraising events, charity auctions, and galas. Visit Ariva.com and reach out today and see how Ariva can help your nonprofit organization go further. Welcome back, everyone. It's time for Ask the Maestro. This is where the audience gets to ask us anything they want to know. Our first question comes from Ricky. He's asking... He says, Jay, I'm a fan of the show, and one thing I want to know is what are some of the ways we can incorporate a texting solution into our auction? Now, we currently use it for mobile bidding, but are there ways that we can get more use out of our, out of our mobile product? Well, uh, you came to the right place, Ricky. I'll give you some answers. Yeah, there's a lot you can do with mobile bidding. Your mobile bidding platform, for example, besides a silent auction, uh, for sure ought to have a donate button on it so that people can make straight donations to you, even if they're not bidding on anything. Uh, you also can do uh, raffles using the mobile bidding platform, obviously subject to your local rules and your state state rules. But if they if they allow for, uh, for raffles, you can do a 50-50 raffle on a mobile platform. You can do a bucket or hat raffle. If you're familiar with that, that's where you sell a, a bunch of tickets and you, you, know, you drop so many tickets in each quote bucket. Mobile bidding platforms should be able to let you buy virtual tickets and drop those tickets into virtual buckets and then pick a pick a winner for you. If you're running a golf tournament, you can do a, what we like to call an 18-hole auction, where you can actually uh, tie in the bid activity around uh, around your silent auction to the scoring that the golfers are actually getting on particular holes that are that are uh, assigned to some of the auction items. And, and uh, you can also reach out to us for how to, how to go about doing that. And here's one I, I really like, which is selling an item more than once. Now, because you're, you are tracking the bid history on any particular item in your silent auction, uh, because you have a mobile platform, you've already captured that cell phone number of that individual bidder and they've already opted into the system. So that allows you to reach back out to them afterwards and send them a text message. So why not send a text message to your second, third and fourth place bidders on some of the auction items and with the cooperation of your donor offer to sell a second, third or fourth item, even though they were all bidding on one item, you might be able to sell two or three or four of the same thing. So that's a way to pump up your revenue after your event. And then finally, because you have the, that opted in uh, audience, you can send a text message out to everybody to thank them for coming to the event. And then later on, maybe a month or two later, remind them about the next event that's coming up for your cause. So lots of ways to use a mobile bidding platform. Thanks, Ricky, for the question. Great answer, Jay. Thanks. Our next question comes from Mary, and she asks, Hi, Driven by Cause team. I work at a school, and each year we host an annual fundraiser. Do you have any ideas about a simple way we could host this fundraiser to get all the grade levels involved? Thanks in advance for the answer. Love the show. Um, I'll take that. I, I, I think it's a great question. We've had some really wonderful experience and uh, on annual fundraisers and getting, um, getting the grades involved. And, and I think one of the best ways that I've seen this is what, I, what we call 
and everybody may define it a little bit differently is, is, is team collaboration and team fundraising. So you could identify each classroom and each classroom's teacher could be the captain and they would set their own goal. And then underneath that, they could reach out to their friends in a really nice way uh, without the school seeing all their friend emails, write a very nice email, send this out to their friends, and then their friends could then give a donation. It's, it's really not only collaboration, it's creating awareness, you're identifying the, the annual fundraiser and really the messaging of what you're, you're providing and why I'm giving a donation on behalf of that. You're also inspiring each classroom to compete with each classroom. You can get the kids involved and have them go home depending upon the age of the kids. You can have the kids go home and get their parents involved. And it really brings together not only the classroom teachers, the school, the parents, and really the drive of what they're accomplishing. Once it's accomplished, it's really nice to go send out messages to the individuals that really did contribute. You know, a system should provide automatic and it could be custom thank you acknowledgement receipts by each teacher from the system or each donor from the system. So this whole collaborative effort of what's the movement out there of annual fundraisers and team fundraising, I think is essential. We've seen some really amazing schools do this. And then you're putting a time frame around it too. So it's it's not an ongoing thing, even though it's you know an annual perspective, but it really is a time frame. It could be 60 days, or when you know there's a time frame and you're setting personal goals, and each classroom could set different goals because maybe their audience is a little bit different, and you just need to identify that. So the end goal of what the school is trying to create is the end goal and then just identifying and collaborating with each one of those classes. We've seen it done very successful. And if you'd like to talk more about this, I could talk for hours on the subject. So I, I love this. Well, thank you. Thank you, David. And uh, thank you uh, for the questions. Uh, that's all the time we have today for the Ask the Maestro session, but we'll be doing it again on a future podcast. So please do send your messages in, your questions in, and we will do our best to answer your question on our next Ask the Maestro. Julie, thank you so much for being here today. It was truly a pleasure getting to hear from you, having our audience know all the wonderful things, not you're just doing on a local community basis, but truly on a worldwide basis. You are impacting our world. And personally, I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you so much. And um, wishing everyone all the best with a lot of fundraising success coming up here as we as we emerge from COVID. And um, yeah, and everyone should come plan a trip to Monterey and come see the accordion. Um, guarantee. Well, I know I look coming. forward to it. For all our you. listeners, thank you for joining us as well. Jane, I also want to thank our sponsors, Ariva and Microsoft. The industry is only completely integrated and fully automated, all-in-one, digital fundraising, donor relationship management, healthcare hospitality, and auction software platform, helping thousands of nonprofits daily. Make sure, make sure you join us next time on Driven by Cause and make it a great day.